You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Patrick, Towner, just the three of us this morning. Towner, let's start um, with your take on Mike Johnson's first week as Speaker of the House. What what went on? What's going on inside the Republican caucus? Yeah. Obviously, a battle over has emerged over Israel and Ukraine aid between the House and the Senate. But anyway, give us your take. Yeah, I mean, I, I I actually think his week was was really good for him uh, at this point. I think um, you know he they passed the legislative branch appropriations bill, which was appropriations bill number six of twelve. Uh, momentarily, they will pass the interior appropriations bill, which is seven of twelve, uh, which is remarkable in and of itself. And uh, and they're moving forward next week with some additional appropriations bills. The beginning of the week started pretty well for him, I think, as far as the Republican conference was concerned. The end of the week is getting a little bit more uh, muddled uh, because in the beginning of the week, he had his first press conference. Uh, everybody in the leadership chain showed the proper amount of fealty to the uh, to the new leader. Um, and he was he was uh, everybody bowed down and said, under the direction of our new speaker, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, and I think he generally had a pretty good first press conference. I think if anybody watched that press conference, they'd think, look, this guy at least can talk to cameras. I mean, at the very agree. least, he he's totally agree. He can he's not, you know, fumbling around. He stays on message pretty well. Um, things along those lines, whether or not you like the message is a totally different story. But but he at least stays on message uh, and is and is decent for the cameras. By the end of the week, though, uh, the fissures started to show again. And of course, you know, we had we had the uh, we have the ongoing issue with uh, with aid to Israel, um, where uh, Johnson decided in his first major decision as speaker uh, that he needed to offset that $14 billion. Uh, and he did so uh, by taking money away from the IRS, which had been added under the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Ironically, that money, if you take it away, means that it costs more because the way the CBO scores it is that that money goes towards collecting from tax cheats and investigating and collecting from tax cheats. And so uh, so you actually make money by spending money. It's the only place in the federal government where you save money by by spending money if you give it to the IRS for for tax uh, enforcement. So so it looked totally uh, backwards that he was cutting this this 14 billion dollars but it actually was going to cost the federal government $25 billion to cut that $14 billion. Um, so there was some back and forth there. But at the end of the day, it's $14 billion for Israeli aid. And so he's able to cobble together enough votes on the Democratic side of the aisle from members who are like, I don't care how we get there, quite frankly. I mean, it irritates me that we're doing this. But at the end of the day, we need to rush the money to Israel. So he was able to muscle that across the finish line. Uh, the back end of the week here, you know, interestingly enough, they're saying because of scheduling reasons, they had to pull the transportation HUD bill, appropriations bill uh, from the floor, which was supposed to be considered late last night and into Friday. Um, in fact, it's because the moderate New Yorkers have said, you are planning on cutting the transit budget by a lot, and we are not okay with that, and the rail budget as well. And so we are starting, 
after about four days of legislative business under Speaker Johnson, we're about to dive right back into moderate versus conservative. Uh, and and who knows if they can move forward on, on some of those appropriations bills. That's been the plan. Pass all the appropriate bills for the next couple of weeks. Try to jam the Democrats in the November 17th shutdown CR timeframe and then move on from there uh, to a broader yeah. negotiation. I don't know if they'll be able to get there. How much of what he's doing is promoting his own personal political views versus trying to manage his caucus? Yeah, because obviously it's a very difficult job from from a management point of view. So with based on your experience, kind of. Yeah. Well, so I think he's trying to go about it a different way, which is interesting. Uh, so and this is going to sound sort of stupid, but it, it, it actually there's a real there's a real difference here. So we'll what, be the judge of that. Tony. All right. Yeah. But what Speaker Johnson has done is said we need to find offsets, which is one thing. What the Freedom Caucus is saying is we need to cut, which is a totally different thing. And so. I think what he's trying to do is sort of split the difference between the moderates and the conservatives by saying, let's be proactive about finding offsets. Let's offset with this IRS money, for example, um, the the Israeli aid. We have, you know, I don't think there's a Republican right now, quite frankly, moderate or conservative that doesn't think that there's a serious debt and deficit issue. I quite frankly don't think there's a Democrat for the most part that doesn't think there's a serious debt and deficit issue as well. And we got those numbers this week, but the economy's humming along still and we don't have an interest rate hike and all that jazz. So, you know, the the bottom line is I think Johnson's going to approach it from, look, I'm not opposed to this spending, but I am going to insist that we offset. Uh, and uh, and so maybe that splits the difference at the end of the day. The transportation HUD bill, which got pulled, is a result of cuts, moderates revolting against cut actual cuts, not against offsets to, to, um, to baseline funding. Patrick, what's the view on the Democratic side of the aisle in terms of how he's what kind of what kind of start he's off to you know there's kind of a wait and see approach i think they certainly don't underestimate him but i think the proposing offsets on israel was a perfect example of someone who's never done this before and maybe he felt like he had to do that to message to the more conservative members of his caucus that i'm going to approach these types of negotiations differently but you know we don't offset foreign aid, particularly in times of crisis when it's emergency spending. And there's just no way uh, a Democratic White House and Senate and Senate Republicans uh, disagreed with it. I mean, so but power to your question about personal political views versus managing the caucus, it seems like he's more in line with probably where more of his members are. Um, so he's I think he's speaking for them in addition to himself. But it strikes me that this is what I think in choosing someone who's never been in leadership to lead these types of negotiations, it's going to become evident if it isn't already that he's way over his skis and his ability. He's going to have to get good at this very quickly um, in order to not get completely rolled or to have a stalemate. And, you know, some of the there has been some views, I feel like, in in the Republican Party on foreign policy that have certainly changed, you know, started probably in the Trump years. But like, I think right now, I don't know, Towner, you'd know the numbers. I don't know what percentage of the House Republican caucus thinks we need to offset the emergency funding to Israel. 
I don't think it's a majority. Maybe it is. No way. No way. Yeah, it's probably so less than 30 members, I would say. Totally. So I feel like he's signaling to the far right of his caucus. It just looked to me like kind of a mistake uh, and an error, uh, not really understanding how these negotiations are going to go. But, Howard, the one thing I was going to point out, the Republican Party has changed their view. And I know they have. And, uh, you know, the the party has always had unequivocal support for Israel. I will be curious if over time, if this is a long war and we have multiple aid packages, does what happened with Ukraine start to happen with Israel where there's just spending fatigue? And, you know, there's been this part of the Republican Party that's sort of like we don't want unlimited foreign policy engagement. I, as a Democrat, think that's wrong, by the way. And disagree with a bunch of folks in my party. Like, I think we should have unequivocal support for Israel for as long as it takes, because it's a national security imperative for them and for us. But I just wonder, I don't think this is going to play out the way it would have 10 years ago. Right. I just think the coalitions are different now. No, and I I think and I agree with that. I think in particular, it was a mistake given what's going on in your party, you know, on the depends how you how you break the party down but the the democratic socialist members and the what i'll call the far left they're not speaking out strongly against anti-semitism they are in some cases embracing i would say embracing or at least not condemning what has what went on what sparked this whole thing the the Hamas raid terrorist attack in in Israel killing fourteen hundred people, they're hiding behind the Palestinian cause as an excuse for for where we are. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. What and obviously that's not the majority of the Democratic caucus. There is a division, enough a division, Howard. To your point, where. This should have been a moment where Republicans could have said Democratic hardliners are out of line with where the mainstream of this country is. We're united on support to Israel and we'll watch Democrats vote against this. Instead, they exposed unnecessary division on their own side, which, Tanner, you tell me if you think it's a mistake, too. I just think it was I think it was an error. I think they screwed up. It was it was a mistake. It was fully Speaker Johnson's mistake. Um, And I think it came about because it was the first decision that he had to make. And he wanted to he wanted to make a statement to the conservatives, which he is one of. And that uh, that, you know, there was going to be, you know, the last thing he wanted to do was have his first major decision be a, um, you know, a spending package that that was not offset. Um, And so he he grappled with it. And I think he came to the conclusion that he would offset it with the IRS money that this was but he got too cute by half you know he he tried to jam the democrats on on irs money but all he had to do was put the dang and to your point patrick put the dang package on the floor without an offset and he jammed the democrats just the same you know the democratic party is in a bit of flux right now i think you know and I'm not flex the Senate too, right? I think you've yeah. got McConnell saying they should be combined. I think if Johnson had put a package on the floor just Israel, it would have passed overwhelmingly. And then you can say, tough. I did it. Yeah. I I separated them. Deal with it. Yeah. Pass the aid to Israel now. He cost himself in the Senate for sure. Um yeah. and but, he gave you know, Schumer Towner the opportunity yeah. to make him look like an idiot. Yeah. And uh, make them look anti-Israel quite fr- I mean it's not anti-Israel yeah that's that's probably too that's too strong like of a he was statement, playing politics with Israel playing politics with Israel yeah right yeah absolutely I mean but 
you know, look, as far as, as spending goes, we're we're one hundred and ten billion dollars away from questioning whether, uh, you know, the fatigues there vis-a-vis Ukraine. Uh, certainly, we spent a lot of money on Ukraine and that's fine. I'm totally in support of that. But but I think we're we're at totally different stages of Ukraine versus Israel right now. And and quite frankly, Israel has far more capabilities than Ukraine has, even if they, they do need replenishment at some point. So and it's a totally different conflict. Yeah. Totally. I mean, Israel, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, Israel's a proxy war. Yeah. Israel, this is all Iran. Yeah. And that's what this is. And that's what these knuckleheads on the left, like forget every day when they hide behind free speech this is supporting a repressive regime in Iran that is the epitome of denying people free speech and the epitome of denying people minority rights and the epitome of repressing things like LGBTQ rights. And yet people on the far left are blind to that and are reflexively supporting what's going on. But this is this is about Iran and Israel and the United States. I mean, and I would even say it's about Iran and the United States. But Howard, this can't be a shock to you. This can't be a shock to you. I mean, Democrats go and embrace Fidel Castro for the last 40 years. You know, they go and they they find a dictator anywhere in the world. And yet they're the first one to say that we need all these additional freedoms uh, at home and we need to be so progressive at home. But progressive Democrats have been embracing dictatorial regimes for forever. It's such a shock with the Trump-Putin thing because Republicans have it, because Republicans have not done that. They have railed against progressive Democrats doing that. And so, you know, communism's like a thing that progressive Democrats like, and Iran just isn't even communism. It's just what they got left. I brought this up last week, though. In the House resolution vote, Tanner, what was it, 9, 10, broke off? They are loud and obnoxious and wrong, and yeah. what they are stating is offensive, but it isn't the majority of the caucus. You have a Democratic president who I think has been as strong in Israel as you could possibly be in light of what happened. So I just don't think you can generalize it as it, it is a problem to be pointed out, but it isn't even anywhere close to the majority of Democrats who feel that way. Certainly but, not elected Democrats. No, but it's Patrick. What has happened in the- What? Towner- we have frozen towner, Patrick. But oh, am I back? I'm back. You're back. back. He's but, back. I thought but, you guys froze. I don't know what was going on. <laughs> no, frozen towner. I was gonna say, but what has happened in the last week since that vote has taken place? We have now dispatched the Secretary of State to tell Netanyahu to calm it down. Biden spent the last 24 hours, you know, saying they're going too far. They're going too far. I mean, this is in the last week, there's been a turn. And those nine become way more than nine if that vote is held today. And that way more than nine becomes even more than that if the vote's held next Friday, I think. It's, It's the problem with it. I, I would say is not even a policy problem. The problem with it is it gives cover to all these knuckleheads running around the country, particularly on college campuses, engaging in virulent anti-Semitic behavior. And frankly, it's on both sides of the aisle. I mean, the far left and the far right, look at January 6th. January, look at what was on the... Look at the slogans that 
people were wearing on January 6th as they were storming the Capitol. Camp Auschwitz. I mean, like. For the record, those were not college kids. They were definitely not college (laughs) kids. There was, uh, there were some interesting people. Yeah. It was, it's, so it's both, both extremes, which obviously it's personal to me as somebody who's Jewish feeling that from both sides, like they, they give cover. And frankly, I, I think Trump gave cover like Charlottesville was cover. Charlottesville was cover for this fine people on both sides. No, there weren't fine people on both sides. And it's it's horrific what's going on and and policymakers it's not ju- it's not just about making policy it's about giving cover to knuckleheads this is i mean this is the worst you know kind of of you know sort of counterculture if you will um but it's not like colleges have been absent of giving rise to counterculture over you know the last uh, at least 70 years uh it certainly has been a routine thing yeah but uh, this is hate it's not counterculture no, absolutely i agree with you and well, some officials of- need to stand up to it too they need to you know they can't they can't hide behind you know there's all these voices on the internet that build this stuff up talk radio show hosts people that are feeding this stuff every day. They're doing it on college campuses. They're doing it on the internet. And I just feel like a lot of our elected officials don't speak out against it enough. And, you know, this week there's a guy, Stuart Peters, he hosts a a show called Rumble. It's some far right show. He's had, you know, half a dozen Republican members come on. He is an, he's, he's an anti-Semite. And he, this week, he's a white nationalist. And this week he called for all Catholic Charities employees to be shot and killed because they're helping undocumented immigrants uh, that are coming over and they're on the front line. I mean, and I had, we represent Catholic Charities. They sent me this and I'm reading through the whole thing. And I'm like, how can elected officials have appeared with this guy if he is an avowed anti-Semite and a white nationalist? And now he's saying he should kill social services workers. I mean, how, how do... How does someone like that even get in the pseudo, you know, mainstream of the Internet? I just don't understand it. And roll the tape back to the 1930s. Yeah. This is what was happening in this country. Yeah. Yeah. You had an America first policy or an America, America first, not policy, but an America first movement, just like MAGA. And. Charles Lindbergh, a national hero, was the face of was one of the faces of that movement. And it led to assimilation, which led to a failure to call out what was happening in Europe, which contributed greatly to to the Holocaust. And it just feels like history is repeating itself all over again. And thank goodness Joe Biden is calling it out. Mitch McConnell, too. I know he doesn't have the microphone. No, McConnell, like too. Does, but, I, yeah, Mitch McConnell's been, like, in my Washington years, like, Darth Vader half the time with just, and frankly, it's I'm just I'm just impressed most of the time by how he always pulls off when he needs to pull off to get it done. But he, I, I've been crediting him all week, like, just anyone I talk to. I think it's important what those guys are doing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the right answer. I think, I think, uh, there's a lot of misguided people on both sides of the aisle right now. And, 
for for many different reasons, which is really weird. And but they seem to all be aligning. And and you know, I think this in some way, and I I guess just gotta think about this a little bit more, but it gets back to that sort of uh, bending of the ideological horizontal spectrum, uh, where I feel like the the whatever the Freedom Caucus libertarian wing is is getting closer and closer uh, to the pro- progressive Democratic wing, and they are and they're they're not having good thoughts right now. Yeah, I mean, I maintain it's about people in power giving cover to bad people, <laughs> just to. to yeah kind of dumb it down and it's you know i i don't think it's endemic i think it is i think it's a it's a relatively small number of noisy people in power that are giving cover to bad people and that aren't thinking they're not thinking about the consequences of their actions or maybe they are like i don't think when Trump went to Charlottesville and said there are fine people on both sides. I think he is thinking about what he's saying. I think he's trying to solidify solidify a base and it's it's to- it is toxic. It's toxic and thank goodness for the people who are right thinking not right in the political sense but who have their heads together on this and it's it's a scary time. Or one more um, thing I just want to mention on yeah. the Johnson question you asked, just because I feel like we've all been trying to, you know, assess what type of legislative leader he's going to be just so easily reminded this week, you know, and I'm sure McCarthy was thinking this watching it, you know, from his his office, being a legislative leader of a caucus, particularly when the majorities are really narrow. It's just a crummy job. It is really hard. and. You know, you look at the people that are really good at at it. You know, I don't think either Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer, neither of those guys were like the best looking, most popular guys at their high school. Right. I mean, they they just but they have a skill and a talent for the puzzle that is putting the majority you need together to pass what you need to pass to make government continue to work. And you know, putting someone in the chair like Johnson, who has never had to do that before, particularly with just all of the big things we have going on, it's just a really risky proposition. And maybe he'll get really good at it. I mean, we just don't know. I mean, that's just too soon to know. But Towner, you're an institutionalist. I mean, you've worked in leadership, like you watch this, it's just, you see the people that are good at it. And it's so impressive. But you don't get a whole lot of love from the public on it. No, you know, the general public kind of hates Congress. They don't, they don't celebrate those that are great legislators, right? It's it, but it's it's a real talent and a skill, yes. and yeah, and it takes years to hone it too. Well, and and I think that's the the problem. I mean, he is, with the exception, I think, of one other, uh, the speaker who has served the least before becoming speaker in the modern era. And, uh, and so, you know, he's either, he's either a child prodigy, uh, and, and Republicans better hope he is, uh, or, uh, he could be, uh, he could be short for the, uh, speaker's chair. And I just feel like it matters more, Howard, you haven't worked for a couple presidents. Like, I'd be curious your perspective, like when you have an inexperienced president who doesn't come from Washington and that can be, I mean, Donald Trump's the most obvious example, but you know, Bill Clinton coming from Arkansas, whoever it is, you know, as long as congressional leadership 
if you have some people that have been there a long time, you kind of know that the wheels of government are going to keep working, even though even you're you're going to run into problems, you know, on big negotiations. But like you had leaders in Congress when Trump was president that you just sort of knew eventually you'd get to where you needed to go. But when you have inexperienced legislative leadership, I just feel like it's a big question mark of kind of how does the day to day stuff continue to function? And I don't know if it's better or worse necessarily, but it's just, I just find it interesting that you kind of bet on Congress, like, even though they're easy to pick on and they're childish and all this stuff, you, you sort of just assume there's going to be people running it that even if they're not that likable, they kind of know how to get from point A to point B, but this is different. Well, I think Congress, you know, it's, I think the early days of a presidential administration, it takes a while for any new president to find uh, their footing. And it's, I mean, there is a lot of stumbling and bumbling during that transition period as people get into their seats and try to figure out how to run their agencies and what the priorities are. And there's a fair amount of toing and froing in the early days of a presidential administration. But you don't see, there's so much going on a lot of that is kind of bits and pieces and you don't see it all. The thing with Congress, I mean, something like this, something like the Israel aid package, it's, it's visibility. And it's look at the end of the day, the Senate's going to call the shots on this anyway, but symbolically it looks, it's very visible and it looks bad. And I think more than look, not to minimize the role of Congress, like, they make the laws and they oversee their execution, but they don't execute. And I mean, we could debate all day the relative importance of the executive branch versus the legislative branch. They're obviously they're obviously both important, but I think it's much more important symbolically what happens in Congress. And that's the way I see it. I agree with that. Let's pivot to the presidential speaking of presidents. Because um, all the buzz on the Republican side right now, away from Trump, seems to be with Nikki Haley. I saw an interview last night with Chris Sununu, governor of New Hampshire, who spent the day storming the state with with Nikki Haley. I guess he's doing this with um, a bunch of the candidates. But and it was he was taking Trump to the woodshed in this interview. I mean, he was strongly anti-Trump. I was, I was taken aback by that towner. Uh, You know, I think, you know, he's a sitting governor. He himself is somebody who could have run. His name was in the, you know, in the hat as far as somebody who could run for president. But I was surprised how strongly anti-Trump he was. I wouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, Sununu has pretty much always been strongly anti-Trump, but, uh, you know, he's he's sort of like Chris Christie, he's sort of savored his ability to be uh, sort of anti-Trump, yet still a Republican and a fairly popular one at that. Um, he, he made the exact opposite decision that Chris Christie made, which was... You know, I don't know if just being against a guy is going to get me into uh, into the White House. So um, and so he decided not to not to venture onto the stage and become the uh, the focal point. But instead, you know, he had the home state advantage of of being the governor of New Hampshire. And he can sort of uh, help be the Jim Clyburn esque 
kingmaker of the last election cycle, for example, on the on the Democratic side when it came to to Jim Clyburn's support of Biden in, in South Carolina. And so um, so he's chosen that role, which I think is a wise choice. But you're exactly right. I mean, the the field Called right running now, for HUD secretary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's exactly or right. something. I don't know why anybody would want to be a cabinet secretary ever for any reason. Like some one thing goes wrong, you immediately get fired. It's not like you can run for Congress immediately after that. You know, usually things people don't know what to be. Their whole lives are built around this infrastructure of like, what are they going to do next? That's that's all it is. I spoken like a legislative branch guy. Like, are you kidding me? I mean, I wouldn't want to be HUD secretary. But if you're secretary of the treasury or you are running one of these, even secretary of commerce, like look at Gina Raimondo building her profile at commerce under this administration. Like, but for and one, by the way, nobody's going from that to being a member of Congress. That's like a huge, huge step down, maybe a senator. Yeah, but she gets she gets subpoenaed. She gets grilled by members. Of, I mean, that's got to be. Tanner, she actually has power. She actually gets to do something. I don't know that she actually does. It As opposed to walking around and asking people for money all day it's long. Like, it's like one step down from the show Veep. You know, it's like, have you been near the president in the last week <laughs> and a half? Um, people were talking about like both, right? They'll they'll yeah, be yeah. senators or cabinet secretaries. This is just their life. They want they want they want to keep moving up. Yeah, but anyway, back to the presidential. Yeah, so so I mean, I, I think the general consensus right now is Trump's on tilt a little bit, and uh, and folks are just jumping in uh, to the extent that they can. This is the first time in the extent of this race that we've really seen chinks in the armor. I mean, his. Nikki Haley is surging. We haven't seen a person besides maybe DeSantis before he announced. We haven't seen anybody surge yet that's not named Donald Trump. This is a regularity of prior elections when you don't have an incumbent president that you're that you're supporting. Usually you have multiple people over the course of uh, of a campaign season that sort of come to the top and then fade away and come to the top and fade away. Um, we haven't had that this year. It's just been sort of Trump dominated. And this is the first consolidation of power against Trump that we've seen, uh, certainly in this primary and probably for the last eight years. This is this is one of the first consolidations of power against Trump uh, that we've seen in the Republican Party. Um, you know, others were not able to do it. Boehner wasn't able to do it. You know, the those types of 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 Republican leaders weren't in on the elected side, weren't able to do it. Um, I so, maintain, Towner, that yeah. his unwillingness to get on the debate stage, he's scared. Yeah, he, he's afraid. Like in 2016, he vanquished all those opponents standing next to them on the debate stage and mocking them and and knocking them off their game. Yeah. He's silent. And the only thing we see is Trump in a courtroom being questioned about and having his kids questioned about the true value of their businesses, which is the whole myth mythology around Trump in the first place. And I maintain that that combination at the end of the day is going to take a bite out of a bite out of Trump, whether, you know, I think he's probably still the nominee. I think the Democrats want him to be the nominee as much as they won't say that i don't want him to be the nominee um 
you know, Mark to talk to. I mean, it's like if you're a hyper political operative and your entire right. life is based on like that's true, the electoral college, then yeah, like I'm sure the Jen O'Malley Dillons of the world and all those people want want it to be Trump. But I think regular American Democrats like myself don't want it to be. I mean, it, you know, and that's it's I was just talking about this with someone yesterday. I think like a lot of people, I think probably everyone on this Zoom agrees. If the Republican Party were to nominate Nikki Haley, I I think she would absolutely win. I mean, I just I think she would beat Biden in a general election, hands down. And I just I feel strongly about that. And I would rather have that happen than Trump be the nominee and not know that. That's yeah. just how I feel about it. That's I'll be quite frank at this point. I'm way more committed as an American to Trump not getting in the White House again than I am to a Democratic president getting reelected. Like it just matters more to me. And that is the Democratic Party slogan for the 2024 elections. Uh, That is. I said that was the slogan for the 2020 elections, too, uh, by the way. And so at some point, you all have to rally around the fact that you actually have the president in the White House, um, which is which has been sort of amusing to me that Democrats would rather run against Trump than for Biden uh, for for a regular period of time here. So but, you know. Nikki Haley, again, she's the first person to consolidate some sort of support. And we're seeing the winnowing of the Republican field. Obviously, Pence dropped, but he was at 1% or less in in most uh, battleground states at this point, even though he had high marks of, I don't know, 3 to 4% in some of the states. But right now, the scenario is still Trump. And there's no way to avoid it because Trump is going to crush everybody in the Iowa caucuses. Trump is then going to move to New Hampshire, where Nikki Haley is up to 20 percent in New Hampshire, above, you know, above 20 percent, actually, I think, in in this morning's polls. But she still trails Donald Trump. And, you know, at some point, if Sununu is still working it, if everybody's still working, I mean, we're talking about legitimately about 450,000 voters in New Hampshire. And if they can get to a point where Nikki Haley tips the balance against Trump and actually goes into the lead in New Hampshire, then that's that's what all Republicans have been looking at. Like when Will Hurd announced his candidacy, he's like, I'm getting an Airbnb in New Hampshire and I'm not leaving there for three months because that's the only pathway to success. Um, DeSantis is a factor too, not in that anyone thinks he's going to be the nominee, but he's still well known enough where he's going to get vote. And it, that, it, it, I feel like everyone's always kind of thought if someone's going to beat Trump, everything has to consolidate around them. You cannot have other people pulling vote from different, and even if who knows where DeSantis's vote goes, some of it I'm sure will of course go to Trump, but there might be some of it that doesn't. But yeah. there's no, there's no way to consolidate that much anti-Trump vote if you got other people in the field. And DeSantis is well known enough where, like I said, he's not going to win, but he's going to get he's going to get a percentage of the vote that's relevant. Yeah. I mean, so the interesting thing is like, you know, so actually about I think there was just a poll actually done on this, by the way, about two thirds of DeSantis voters go to Trump, which is believe that. Yeah, that seems right for the field as a whole uh, when they're talking about finally Xing out uh, Trump. But, you know, I I think um, and I was just looking up some of the dates real quick, but but, you know, the the bottom line is you got to narrow the field dramatically after Iowa. You have to have Haley potentially at this point because she seems to be the one who's who's taking the 
there's not going to be much movement in the leadership structure of the race over the course of the next two months, because historically there isn't in November and December, because nobody cares about politics in the off year in November and December, and they don't pay attention. But as soon as that calendar flips to January 1, everybody's going to start caring a lot. And so you have to maintain position if you're Haley. You have to come in second, theoretically, in Iowa, and maybe that that knocks out DeSantis, certainly, that, that clears most of the rest of the field if she's able to do that. And then and then she has the potential of beating him in New Hampshire coming in second in South Carolina, which is that becomes the question. So how much does that hurt her that in her home state she comes in second in South Carolina, but she can't let DeSantis squeak in between her and and Trump? And she's got to knock out DeSantis after Iowa at the very least. I think DeSantis has actually gone before Iowa, to be perfectly frank, because he's been on fumes for a while. And it's a he's he's got the Jeb Bush style big money operation and it's hard to maintain that beast and you got to keep feeding it cash over and over again and, and it's a super pack it's, it's a super pack that's keeping his campaign afloat i i believe i mean he's bleeding well, yeah. cash in his campaign he moved account. all of his staff for the most part over the super pack because he's relying on just a handful literally a handful this of is very yeah. rich donors at the end of the day to me this is more about whether people some way somehow peel away from trump yeah and i i think i guess i i guess i'm always uh on sundays i always uh go i try to make contrarian bets on DraftKings on uh on sunday mornings i to me like anything you treat as an inevitability equals a vulnerability yeah and i don't think it's inevitable that people will never peel away from trump his whole persona is built around this notion of being the successful guy that thumbs his nose at the at the establishment and i mean that's that was his persona in the 1980s in in new york city and it's it's who he is and i think everything that's going on is taking or has the potential to take a bite out of that and these gag orders limit his ability to go on TV and rail against rule of law and and what's happening in these courtrooms. And I think it I don't know. I, mean, I guess it, it's probably foolish optimism, but I, I I hope that some way, somehow it takes a bite out of who he is and people start to peel away because I don't think I don't think they really like him. I think they're just attracted to kind of who he who he is. And I think if who he is comes into question, that has the potential to to pull voters away and, and for him to start to bleed. And I, I just I don't know. I don't like treating anything as an inevitability doesn't feel um, like a, a great place to be. Only thing, though, on the last thing you said, and if it's being called into question, I think where he has been successful is convincing his people that those that are calling everything into question, they're the ones that are corrupt. So as they're following, don't I just don't know if Trump voters, as they're following the courtroom stuff and the trials and the, I think they think it's all a setup. And I think they think this is all this deep state coordinated effort to get their guy. And in some ways, I think it helps them feel more connected to yeah. his cause. And and 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a. I'm not saying it's hard to generalize everyone, but I think there's a part of that right. out there, right? Oh, there's absolutely a part of that out there, and there are certain people you're never peeling away for exactly the reason you just articulated. But I don't think that means you can't peel anybody away, right? And we'll see what happens. Well, guys, we a lot going on on Tuesday. Howard, do we get we to do. talk about next week? It's really exciting, yeah. right? In in Virginia, we've got elections and uh, kind of bellwether elections and elections, you know, elsewhere. Obviously, talking um, governor's race is one to watch for our viewers. Yep. Um, there will be a special election in Rhode Island. Uh, Gabe Ammo is likely to be elected to Congress, first African American member of the Rhode Island delegation. Should be exciting. Great guy. Yep. Well, we'll be back next week. I did have a Mark Alderman sighting while on the Beltway briefing. He uh, said that he should have dialed in from 14th century Cambodia, which is oh my gosh, okay, where he is right now. But um, I, I would argue that's always where Mark is. But um, <laughs> we'll save that abuse for when he's back. Um Guys, fun as always, Excellent. even with all the craziness in the world. And we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.